Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We discuss the resignation of Michael Fallon as Defence Secretary and what that means for the government. We speak to the author Nick Harkaway about his book Nomon. And we ask, why hasn't the media published the full list of dodgy Tory MPs? So it is a bit of an emergency um, podcast. We're coming to you on Thursday morning because we had some news overnight, which is that the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, resigned in an extremely nebulous resignation statement in which he said his conduct had fallen below the high standards expected of the armed forces. And as Defence Minister, that was an issue. He didn't admit to anything specifically. There were some suggestions that the incident that came out that was on the front page of The Sun where he touched the knee of Julia Hartley Brewer several years ago was perhaps not the only incident of a similar kind, maybe some that were a bit more uh, that the person who it happened to felt a bit more strongly about. And the suggestion is that Theresa May sort of said, if you can't guarantee me there's no more dirt to come out, then probably best you, you go. The news this morning is that Gavin Williamson, formerly the chief whip, mostly famous for owning a tarantula called Cronus. I want to say Cronut, but that's a, no, it's Cronus. A, that's a type of donut, is the new defence secretary. His so deputy fallen out, Gav in. Thanks, thanks, Stephen. Stephen is not looking at his sprightly morning best, having had a night out at the Spectator Parliament Shores. Although I will say this for you, you did file a piece about what Fallon's resignation meant from from a ballroom from somewhere. A ballroom, yeah. Oh, and Esther McVeigh, who some of you might remember as a former TV presenter, was kicked out in Wirral in 2015, got back in in 2017. She's now in as Deputy Chief Whip. She, I believe, is also the person who was the subject of John McDonnell quoting the Lynch, the bastard quote about, right? In a kind yeah. of neat people's oh, bad attitudes to women kind of coming full circle. So Stephen, give me your snap analysis of what the Fallon resignation means for the government. In terms of the government, as a Conservative government survival, not all that much. Fixed-term Parliament's Act still locks them in. He's not going to provoke a by-election. He's not going to have bruised feelings because he went semi of his own accord. However, it has quite big impacts on the life of Conservative government led by Theresa May. The first uh, immediate consequence is that it has set the bar for what is a, an offence which means you cannot remain as a minister. Now, yes, as you say, it's been briefed by friends of Fallon throughout the press that uh, 
than more may have been to come. Rather, actually, like when Stephen Crabb was sacked by Theresa May in, in June 2016, she basically went, well, you know, this sexting, is there more of it about? He was like, <clears throat> well, uh... Yeah, uh, actually, do you know what? That, look, that yeah. now is a decision that reflects very well on, on Theresa May because clearly he was somebody who has... Yeah. Is not unacquainted with the aubergine emoji. Yeah, yeah. So th- although there may be more, and it may more of it may come out, it is still a bar which no one who is currently accused by name is beneath. And the interesting question, right? So they have gone for a limited reshuffle, as we've said. Is does that mean that the younger generation starts to get a bit restive and go, look? But if you're not going to do a big reshuffle, when is my chance going to come? The other thing is, right, is the thing that several uh, Tory MPs were saying to me last night at this party I'm now regretting going to was that they think that the, the main casualties will be people from the older generation from 1997 or earlier. The thing about that generation is they are all Theresa May's. Well, they're not all, but to the extent that Theresa May has allies. political allies, they are them. So I think a that's people... a really interesting thing about this, actually, is that, yeah, that um, I did a tweet last night, which I, point, I, I just had a look at that top, really top tranche of the cabinet, right? And you, so accepting Philip Hammond, who's faced big briefings against him ahead of the budget, right? And people see as both a kind of last thatch, right? And ardent remainder and, and are trying to destabilise. You have Boris Johnson, who's already resigned from the cabinet twice. Liam Fox, who's resigned from the cabinet once over the Adam Werity incident. Damien Green, uh, Theresa May's closest political ally and effectively deputy prime minister in all but name, who's facing allegations which he strongly denies and has set libel lawyers on people over. And who else? I mean, and, and Fallon, who's who's gone, right? So it, it is it's something that you and I have talked about many times on the podcast before, that the Tories are reaping the whirlwind of the fact that they have for consistently now for seven years not promoted enough new talent and relied on, because of the factionalism issue, they have relied on big beasts. But the trouble with the big beasts is a lot of them feel extremely recycled at this point. And the other thing I was, I, I spent a happy uh, half hour on the Back to Basics Wikipedia page, because I know how to have fun. This is what I was doing when you were out drinking. This is why I'm so fresh-faced this morning. And I think the thing that's really fascinating about that is you just get a drip, 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 and it happens over several years and just another person. And actually, lots of the incidents now, I think, are probably not things that would be resigning offences. So they're just a kind of straightforward affair or they're someone who's, you know, left their wife for a man, which I think I'm going to say, I want to say Greg Clark, but I'm not sure if I'm getting that right. I think this is is now a survivable thing, even in the Tory party, right? That people just go, okay, you're gay now. That's kind of cool. Well, I think the the problem with back to basic scandal right was then because the government went we're social conservatives now that then massively lowers the bar of what a resigning offense is right if you're going to start pointing and going oh single mothers are awful well if you've fathered the child and run off well then of course that's a resigning matter i mean i think that was the thing about the first set of of crab sexts that as i understand it there was not a problem of abuse of power there was just a problem that if you're a christian conservative it is quite difficult to reconcile that with your uh, stated public policy aims um, i would like to interject and say i've got my gregs mixed up i didn't mean greg Clark. i meant of course tory mp greg barker greg barker you were barking up the wrong tree i see what i've done that yeah i know that and i think that was the, that was the problem is it was seen as a, a very moralizing government and then you can't once you moralize i mean you know jacob rees mogg had better hope that every part of his private life is spotless given that he's mr king of the catholics yeah. whereas if you're somebody who's always been a social liberal then you kind of go well i i never voted on these issues you know i never said this was was bad or wrong yeah i think that the other sort of added thing is although you know i think people tend to overstate the importance of 
uh, of, of narrative in politics and probably understate the importance of structural trends. To the extent that these things matter, it is another thing which adds to the sense that the government is... On its um, last legs. A last le- on its last legs, just this kind of deeply unhappy extended hyphen between the eras of Cameron and Corbyn. But here's the thing, don't you feel that... I mean, I had this terrible thought last night where I thought, oh my God, what if there's an election next year? And in a way, I'd be very happy if there was a proper clearing of house, actually in both and all parties, of people who... You know, whose conduct over a course of years has been what we now clearly consider to be inappropriate. But if you're Jeremy Corbyn, surely you've got to be slightly crapping yourself at the thought that you might have to become Prime Minister as Brexit is just about to finish, but not quite finished. And therefore, you're going to have to own that whole great big mess. I mean, I know everyone in politics obviously will say they want power immediately and they're ready to govern and everything like that. But what a suboptimal time for anyone to become Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, this is where my like boring Remainer uh, comes comes in and I just go, well, actually what you do hopefully then is you go, it's EEA time, which, you know, I mean, maybe happen anyway because the, all of this does eat into the time. The government is running out of time. The government is increasingly uh, divided. It's hard to see how the parliamentary arithmetic does get quite difficult. Uh, it's also about. become slightly dangerous, hasn't it, in the sense I feel there are lots of people now involved in sex harassment claims and some of this stuff whose primary motivation is not pure feminism. It is about settling factional scores or, you know, they are piling into stuff for this reason, right? So I think that, they're, you know, at the moment, I don't know, I could feel that some of the kind of key Brexiteers are going to be targeted and some of the key Remainers are going to be targeted. I think there are sometimes scandals catch fire because it is in someone's interest for that particular one to catch fire. The extent to which the kind of, well, Labour does it too, which is true, um, but as that, if that can't be stood up, or if Corbyn is able to make himself kind of the agent of um, of revealing Labour's problems rather than the, the victim, it, it may uh, change. But obviously, like, yeah, the, the problem with politics, it's also the good thing about it, which isn't everything is always politicised, but it does mean that it may not necessarily lead to useful structural changes beyond, you know, changing the faces at the top of the Tory party. Yeah, I think it was very um, noticeable how this week Bex Bailey, the um, Labour activist who said that uh, she was raped by a senior party figure and was told to not cover it up, was given a very sympathetic front page treatment by the Mail with, you know, now Labour dragged into sleaze row or whatever it was, versus the way that Kate Maltby, who made, a, you know, a relatively limited accusation and said, you know, this isn't something I don't think regard as criminal behaviour, actually that she's very much the same as Julia Hartley Brewer in the sense of saying, well, I didn't actually feel particularly victimised by this, you know, it just made me uncomfortable and has been given kind of two full pages of the proper, you know, full Daily Mail bells and whistles about how very dare she, you know, all this stuff. So I think there is a real, where I feel this is going to move now is about, yeah, is in, into a kind of place of, of score settling. But we'll see. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. universal truth of harassment, assault, 
rape and, and, and is the exertion of power. The unique quality of Westminster is that it is the only situation where you have teams. I think one of the things people uh, have is this idea that the whips on either side collect information about the other side and also that they can do it in a particularly scientific way because unless you are exceptionally stupid this inappropriate behavior happens within the tent because it happens you just spend more time with those people for a start right i mean people there are definitely cross-party friendships and relationships and stuff like that in the commons but you know again you're talking yeah you're exactly your thing about kind of having a team is exactly right and also the other thing i was thinking about this morning is that once again this is a really salutary reminder of why we have systems of power that have checks and balances in right and actually why you have a two-party or in our case multi-party system because there is somebody who has actually got a kind of partisan reason for championing, you know, causes that are unf- that would be unfashionable on the other side. And one of the problems with someone like a Hollywood producer, for example, like Harvey Weinstein, is somebody who becomes so dominant in their company that there's essentially no reciprocal balance. But you know, there's no one who can check their power. Actually, the board at that point becomes unable to. Do. And that's not just in sex scandals. But, you know, it might say the similar thing happened with Camilla Batman Geller and Kids Company. There was no one there to say you're this big founder, you know, everybody's interested in you and your story and you're the face of this company, but you can't do this, but you can't do that. And somebody who becomes kind of bigger than the structures of power around them. And I mean, I'm sure Theresa May would absolutely love to be bigger than the structures of power around her, but thankfully there is a a constant churning broil of disloyalty in the cabinet that actually means, you know, that is a big check against tyranny of both traditional political power and misuse of sexual power. The question that a lot of people are asking and will want us to tackle is what happens next. Will there be any real institutional change or will just some people end up getting fired or resigning? I mean, I think there's a, we've written in the piece this week about the recognition of Unite as a union and kind of strengthening that. I think on the Labour side, that would certainly be quite popular and not so much uh, understandably on the Conservative side. The idea of having a kind of independent adjudicator, an independent body that you could go to because you, so you don't have to complain to your line manager, who is also your kind of only manager in these cases. I think that's difficult. I mean, I, I would like to see those structures better because actually at the moment, it does feel a lot like for some people going to the press is the only way to get some action happening but litigating complicated personal relationships and he said she said or he said he said or she said she said is really not what the media is brilliant at right that that is the cause of public opinion is not the place for those things to be investigated yeah and there are a couple of because some people asked us about why unite is not recognized as the official trade union weirdly i hadn't absorbed this you know when you know something you haven't put put it together then mps are technically self-employed sole traders so there is no one to be a recognised employee of, right? And so the density requirements of 50% plus one become impossible to include. You know, de facto, most Labour MPs do recognise Unite as their recognised trade union. But because of the fact they're sole traders, you have a weird he said, she said. But the thing I had absorbed is that Unite are also the unofficial union, but the rec- the official union of the clergy who are also self-employed. Although, obviously, as with MPs, where you go like, yeah, but you're not self-employed, though, are you? <laughs> yeah. uh, and with clergy, like, yeah, but you're not self-employed, though, you're clearly employed by the church. Uh, and in both cases, this is used effectively for the person claiming self-employment status to go, well, a bunch of rights I don't need to guarantee, worry about, or secure. In terms of what will happen in terms of the politics of it, right, obviously it is endemic. The same is true of expenses, but the Conservatives definitely emerged the better out of that politically because David Cameron seized the moment and used it as an argument for a lot of 
fairly dubious things like reducing the size of the commons to 600 equal boundaries but he kind of made himself seem like the reformer reformer and the solution the political aspect to all of this is it is a massive opportunity for jeremy corbyn because he has not come up through the traditions of the party he did not really run hq until relatively recently and and even now it's kind of a semi and an ongoing process of the leadership entrenching its control he does have the he's got clean hands yeah he does have the yeah he does have the ability that he can go into an investigation pretty safe in the knowledge it's not going to come out with anything that's wildly embarrassing to him or anything anyone close to him. Yeah, yeah. at no point has anyone in that project been in a position where they've had to have a conversation where they've gone, yeah, but don't do this. Don't, yeah, don't, there's no the need movement. to report this, yeah. Um, well, so, as far as we know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the thing it is plausible but highly unlikely, right? So, so it, it is easier for Labour to do the right thing because... Yeah, I mean, it's not... He's just got so much more control, hasn't he? Yeah, because he's got the control of the NEC, and he's got... I, I think you wrote this bit in the piece, was that, you know, he's got... He could essentially have a kind of star chamber that he convened, where it's much easier for him to impose his will on the grassroots. And also, the other reason why Labour are well-placed to benefit is in 2010, there were, ooh, let's count them, effectively four and a bit notional anti-system parties to take advantage of political discontent. There were the Lib Dems, who obviously at that point were the like, don't vote for the others, we're just your cute, lovely friend party. There was UKIP, there was the SNP, who are still relatively newly in office in Scotland, and the Conservatives, who don't forget, were at the tail end of their longest period out of office since 1762. So the I don't like the status quo lever you had a lot of ones you could pull. Yeah. Now, the Lib Dems are very Small, much not an withered. anti-system party anymore, right? But yeah, even if they had 30 MPs after going into coalition, they will never again be able to be the like, oh, you know, humble me. Yeah. UKIP look dead. The Greens have kind of had a lot of their political oxygen swallowed up by Corbyn. Yeah. The Conservatives are in office, so the extent to which they were ever an anti-system party, that, that has gone. Yeah. There is really only one lever at the moment and looks available as the anti-system party so there are lots of reasons why even though it is systemic to labor just as it is to everyone else labor is well placed to do better out of it with the fairly major caveat that one of the reasons why this list which we'll discuss in a bit in the next segment this list that has been collated uh, my strong understanding from people who passed it to me is by conservative researchers looking to basically see if there were patterns of misbehavior by the same person But because it has not been effectively organised, it's ended up with just random things which are not germane. Well, let's come back Um, to that in the next section. But but basically, people in the Labour Party are a lot better at organising collectively in the workplace, (laughs) which, which means that the potential for many more Labour figures to be named and shamed and for it to be a Labour problem in terms of thinking, I would say is quite large. So in terms of the political fallout, although there are lots of reasons why one would assume the opposition party would do better, there's also a a very distinct possibility, I think, for Labour to be the party which ends up dominating the headlines. Because, yeah, it turns out if you're the party of Labour organising, you're better at Labour organising. Yeah. (laughs) 
And we're joined by author Nick Harkway, whose new book, No One, is published by Penguin and out now. It begins in a near-future Britain where every action is seen, every word is recorded. Hello, Nick. Hello. Um, and Stephen and I are really interested to talk to you about a wide range of subjects, but maybe let's start with surveillance first. One of the things I was struck by quite early on in the book, so it's it's about an, an interrogation under surveillance that goes wrong and the subject who has uh, hidden herself away from the all-seeing eye dies. And that is the mystery which propels the rest of, of, of the plot, which I strongly urge our listeners to listen to, and I, I will avoid uh, spoiling any further. But from that very early scene, there's a moment in which they talk about how most people who go through um, this interrogation leave happier. And what I thought was interesting about that, and indeed about the kind of whole conceit of the surveillance society as a whole, is it enjoys a great deal of popular consent in the in the book and indeed if you look at twitter or instagram or facebook it's very public airing enjoys a great deal of public consent because people voluntarily do it i just kind of wondered where the idea for all of that came from i mean i was thinking about surveillance and and the degree of it that we accept and when i started writing this book it's 2013 2014 and i was looking to say that the kind of wishy-washy conservatism of David Cameron had an authoritarian streak, and that was very obvious. And in fairness, so did Tony Blair's Labour Party. That was also, you know, they they were buried in there. There was some quite worrying stuff. And I wanted to kind of reach out to that, and I wanted to say, look, hang on, what about if we designed a society that people really wanted that was premised on the idea, not just of surveillance looking over you, but surveillance being underneath you all the time, propping you up. So everything in the society assumes surveillance and everything's built on it. So when we have our phone call to set this up, immediately the the sort of central server is kind of opening my calendar, opening your calendar, moving things around to make our week more rational, you know, and at the same time it's kind of checking to see the sort of levels of, I don't know, have I got a cold? Am I going to be able to speak? You know, am I incubating the flu virus? So I'll suddenly kind of call you this morning and it'll say, oh, actually, hang on, you might have a cold by then. So, you know, you might want to move it, push it two days back or something like that. And the idea is it's surveillance as a service. And it's something that is, uh, it's twinned with uh, a plebiscite, a rolling distributed plebiscite. So the idea is that it is it sees itself as, and in many ways it is, the most democratic arrangement of a society that's that's imaginable. Uh, of course, uh, then there's, there are problems with it, which we get to in the book. But I wanted to talk about a surveillance state that we would all welcome, or at least that a lot of people would, because I think we need to look more carefully at the choices we're making now. I think that's so fascinating because I've been writing about tech for a while and you write every time about this a new feature that everyone says is incredibly spooky or Orwellian or whatever so you know your phone knows where you are all the time or something like that but then the trade-off to that is always convenience it's always the fact that you know when you put in you know I want to go to Charlotte Street it knows you mean Charlotte Street London not in kind of Wyoming or something like that are you surprised how much people will give away of their privacy in order for for convenience i mean are you ever tempted and you've got someone in the book who lives in a faraday cage you know have you, are you ever tempted to go off the grid or have you accepted that bargain yourself i'm never tempted to go off the grid completely i've cut down in the course of writing the book i've inevitably kind of had to think about it more and i've cut down very much on sort of information leakage so I connect to the internet now through a VPN. Um, I have 
uh, I use an encrypted email service in Switzerland, which if I want to encrypt email, I can. I can give you a password to decrypt your individual emails, or you can use the same service and they encrypt automatically. I use, um, instead of text messages, I use either WhatsApp or Signal, which is kind of WhatsApp's more serious older brother. Um, you know, I, I, and those I do as a matter of course, not because there's anything going on in my life that's remotely interesting, <laughs> um, but because, um, I mean, particularly with the VPN thing, if you're connecting over public Wi-Fi somewhere and you're going to do anything that requires you to give your bank details, that should be absolutely hardwired into you that that's what you do. We should all do it. Um, it's not. It's a simple matter of kind of personal security in the same way that you wouldn't shout your PIN code in a supermarket. You know, so that kind of thing. You know, but I don't have the urge to go and live off the grid and I don't feel the urge to wire my house to prevent electrical signals or electronic signals from escaping. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm quite content to give up a certain amount of information, but I'm not content to do it by accident. And the thing that I think is really critical at the moment, so in the book there is this, it's quite interesting, on this basis people are talking about it as a science fictional story, which in some ways it is, but, um, and we'll come back to that I'm sure, but in the book, they go into this woman's mind to interrogate her memory directly. And when I started writing the book, there was a man in Japan who was working using uh, an fMRI machine to take images from dreams, and they were fuzzy. In and now they kind of, this like summer, a dog, basically, they can kind of tell it's a dog, right? If you're thinking about a dog. Uh, just about, yeah. It's interesting, actually. The kind of live feed is fascinatingly weird and surreal, but getting better all the time. But this summer, a researcher at Caltech named Doris Tao announced that she and her team had successfully read basically passport quality, passport photo quality images of faces from the brains of monkeys. So, and when you see the two photographs, the input and the output side by side, they're so similar that her immediate reaction was to call her colleague over and say, did you accidentally cut and paste? So when I started writing this book, that idea was technologically plausible but not practicable. Now it is purely a question of time. If we want that technology, we'll have it. Now the reason we do this kind of brain research is to do extraordinary medical things, vital things, but we don't have to accept from that the radical transparency which is potential in it. And at the moment we have a government which is very keen on protecting its own uh, secrets and privacy. The access to things like judicial review and freedom of information have been massively de de decreased since the, the Conservatives came to power. And uh, at the same time, obviously, they have finally rammed through the Sanipa's Charter, so we're massively more transparent. And actually that disparity is dangerous and we should be talking about it, particularly as it becomes possible to take information directly from the mind. I think that's a fascinating paradox of modern life. We've never had access to more information and it's almost never been harder to find out what, what is good information and what's true and, and, and people maybe even feel more kind of more at sea than ever they did before right I think there's a kind of because we know so much we were more uneasy about the things that we don't know I mean I think if you were kind of, I know it's very hard to get very easy to get ahistoric about these things and if you were a kind of peasant in 1500 of course there were a huge amount of things you didn't know but now there's a I think a much greater uneasiness maybe related to the decline of religion about the idea that we ought to, really ought to be able to know everything and yet somehow mysteriously we don't well I think interestingly I mean in a sense when you if you were a, a, a peasant in 1500, there were certain things that you knew that were incontrovertible. You knew where you lived and you knew probably where you were going to die. You knew that your identity was bound up with your family, with your class and identity in terms of, uh, you know, so what, what profession you followed or what trade. Um, you, you know, you knew that you probably wouldn't uh, travel. 
you know, it was very likely that you would you would spend your entire life in a very small radius, um, and you knew that God had created the universe and that morality was bounded by whatever religion you followed. I mean, it depends obviously where in the world you go, but let's assume that you're talking about, I don't know, um, somebody in a Suffolk. village in Germany or yeah. about <laughs> Suffolk. Yes, exactly. You know, you knew very clearly the parameters of your world and where you fitted into it. Now you have this situation that, you know, um, some people talk about as liquid modernity, which I love as an idea, and mm. I, must, I must write about it you know, in, in a sort of fictional sense. But, you know, where most of the axes that we use to locate ourselves in society and in the world are questionable, they're uncertain, and people are responding to that, I think, in understandable but not necessarily very helpful ways. Um and uh, you know, and so here we are in this liquid society, and one of the things that we reach for in terms of certainty, is, you know, is these structures, and I think that may, lays us open to authoritarian perspectives and ideas, which I thought were seriously dead and buried, and they're not. You alluded to uh, briefly uh, people talking about it as science fiction, although some of the technology in it have become more plausible as you've written it. When you sort of first sat down to to write it. Why sci-fi, or indeed, yeah, if, you, if you want to sort of critique and challenge the term sci-fi, go ahead. I mean, science fiction is a fantastic body of literature, and some of it's really tremendously important. This book, weirdly, although it has it has one thread in it which is sort of science fantastical in a way, but the present time narrative or the the, the central narrative, the detective story, actually there is almost nothing in that that is not basically real and in fact the thing that isn't is almost historical when I started writing the book I envisaged that if you needed to get that far into someone's brain to retrieve their memories you'd need to open their heads up um, and put a chip in um, and I thought I was very clever because I talked about a kytosan chip you know potentially it might bridge the gap between biological and digital uh, processing and so on I was being frightfully whatnot and of course actually now it turns out that that level of physical intrusion isn't necessary to read those images so I'm actually writing historical fiction you know and in the same way that uh, notoriously Tom Cruise's glove in Minority Report isn't necessary to flick images on a, on a display <laughs> you just use your finger um, I realized this actually this morning that the book contains in that central detective line nothing that isn't real in terms of technology so we'd all like to think it was science fiction because we use the science fiction tag to mean we don't have to believe this is all true. And in fact, when you hear it in news broadcasts and so on, very often it goes, it sounds like science fiction, but... And then what follows is some extraordinary piece of radical new technology. And the science fiction tag, I think, is there to say, don't panic, you don't have to think about this yet. And what I want to say every time I hear that is, yes, you do. You absolutely do. Because we have to make... We have to bring these things into the cultural conversation now before they become uh, established matters of practice. So when I started writing the book and I was talking about taking evidence in a criminal proceeding or whatever directly from the brain, there was an editorial in a science magazine that said no government would ever allow as a matter of, of sort of appropriate action uh, somebody to perform an operation of this depth and danger on a, a, a subject in order to retrieve these images. That would be a breach of civil liberties. And I thought that was unclear in the event of like a ticking time bomb terrorist or something, uh, which is always the sort of given thing. Um, but actually now, of course, it's considerably less difficult to achieve and therefore the, the conversation doesn't arise. We have to have this conversation before the first time someone introduces a piece of evidence like this into court. And in fact, 
the there was a case I think last year in a case, in a court in Ohio where a man's pacemaker data was used in evidence to break his alibi. Oh, and someone used they used an uh, an Amazon Alexa or one of those home assistants, right? About the idea that you could can you use a recording from from that? I think that's a, a fascinating thing. And there was a, a another big story about smart TVs. You know, we talk about go back. I guess the archetype for all of this is nineteen eighty four and the idea of the telescreen. Well, actually, it turned out the CIA had got a kind of a, a program where it looked like your TV was off, but actually it was only sleeping and it was listening to everything. And that was targeted. You know, people had to come into your house and do that. But there's no reason why your home Google Home Home Assistant or whatever shouldn't be recording everything that you say and, and sending it back to a to a server. So you're right. In some senses, that future has already arrived. One final question, which is: Is there another work of science fiction that you love that you think people might not have encountered? Because it is a genre full of breathtakingly obscure but brilliant things that people might not encounter. Oh my goodness! I mean, there are so many. Uh, almost anything by Samuel Delaney, Alfred Bester, The Demolished Man. Most of the things that Ursula Le Guin's written, I mean, you know, I mean, whether you've encountered them or not, but I mean, the, the places to start and interesting things to read, it's a wide field. And people really, perhaps because of the argument between C.P. Snow and F.R. Leavis, um, the two, which led to the two cultures yeah. lecture and so on, um, we've really tried to, or literature has often excluded science fictional shapes from its discussion. The thing is that what's happened in the interim between then and now, you know, I guess, I suppose, in the last sort of hundred years or thereabouts, is that the world we live in has been completely rebuilt by technology in ways that we often don't notice. But the result is that you're in the situation where you can no longer use that label, it sounds like science fiction, but because it just describes the world in which we live. You can use genetic manipulation to make super strong beagles, which the Chinese have done. Um, you know, I like the fact you choose beagles. Beagles, that, I know. I, not like, eagles, I also just like saying thing. the word beagle. Um, but no, they, that was even before the second iteration of CRISPR-Cas. They used a different genetic technique and they created beagles this with... This is the gene editing technique. Indeed, you can yeah. Use, yeah. Um, and they, they created uh, beagles with double the normal musculature or muscle mass and <gasps> bone density. So they're very strong. And everyone sees that as a discussion about... Um, physical strength obviously about policing and so on but I look at that and I wondered immediately when I heard about it whether it was about space exploration because bone density and muscle mass are both affected by low gravity environments so if you're going to travel for example to Mars start off really muscly and then you'll be a normal sized human by the time you get there actually sorry to cheat and have a final 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 question (laughs) I wanted to ask about the two cultures because it's an incredibly literary book it's got beautiful prose but it, it also is Incredibly, it's what people like me would have described as hard sci-fi. It's it's, it's not. It's, it's plausible. It's not hand wavy. It's, it's not in that kind yeah. of like you know. Well, the ship just works, or just just accept it. I mean, another science fiction, literary science fiction novel I love, uh, Station Eleven. The the mechanics of the virus are are kind of secondary, whereas the science of this is not secondary. You know, so why is it that you are kind of able to? Cross the sort of two cultures, as it were. I'm really delighted to hear that I can, um, I, because I always worry about that. Because they're not naturally separate, um, so the division doesn't scare me. I mean, it just frustrates me. Um, I, I kind of, I mean, I just think to myself, you know, these have to be together. These are. Uh, there's a kind of tacit contention in some art and literary work which says that you only get to the real human by cutting away the technological environment and it's completely 
nonsensical. We are, historically we have always been, created by, influenced by our technology even as we create it. It's a cycle. And so the idea that you can separate us from the mobile phone and still write contemporary literature is absurd. It's magnificently helpful if you're trying to tell a small, tight, emotional story. But actually the thing is that if you are telling a truthful, small, tight, emotional story, at some point someone's mobile phone will ring or they'll get distracted by something. There are very few people, there are some, who don't carry mobile phones in our society. But that decision in and of itself, in many ways, tells you something about who they are and it puts their life into a kind of oppositional relationship with the mainstream of, of our culture. So if they've made that decision, there's a reason behind it which you have to discuss. Paul Oster and, uh, um, oh goodness, I've blanked now on the man's name and of course he's brilliant. Uh, anyway, there was a long conversation between the two of them about whether you can put a mobile phone in a book or whether you can avoid it. And, uh, you know, I just think you have to. And similarly, you have to give an account of the technology which is coming so that people can say, I want that pathway, I don't want that pathway, and begin to understand it. Because if it just lands on your desk in the morning, you're likely to say, oh, I guess that's how the world is now. I think that's really fascinating. I remember watching the first episode of the BBC's Sherlock drama and it has text messages on the screen and it uses them like a heads-up display. And it was the, I remember it was the first mainstream TV programme I thought that's actually really come to terms with actually how you process information. That You're not just living in this 3D world, but you're also getting things flashing up in front of you. And actually it made it feel modern in a way that you know that, that other things don't and that is something that every writer's I guess it's just very hard for writers because mu most of the time our consciousness is slightly split right we're having one experience in the place where we are and a bit of our brain is often you know doing something else on whatsapp or whatever anyway we must otherwise we'll keep you here all day talking about things but um everyone please rush out by the book it's called no one and that was Nick Harkaway <laughs> And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Indeed. So one of the questions that we had, which you wrote up as a blog post and did very well, was why aren't you publishing The List? And The List, for anybody who's been living under a rock, was, as we mentioned in the last section, collated by conservative researchers, and it mixed together. The reason we haven't published it, well, it's kind of, I'll explain what it was, and, and then it will, be, it will be inherent to that, is that as a journalist you hear lots and lots of crazy rumours there was a long circulating rumour for a huge amount of time that the news of the world had compromising footage of a now beloved national treasure should we say consorting with a chihuahua that they'd got locked in their safe and this was kind of some blackmail thing they were holding on to and the thing is this was something that in like the early noughties of journalism like quote-unquote everybody knew but no one had any clue whether or not it was true or not and this is the kind of thing is like that there was a lot of people saying to me like why don't you publish this list and let us decide and I just fundamentally don't see it as the job of journalists just to throw loads and loads of random stuff at the wall and see what sticks um, without you know like if there is any role to the journalist at all it is the fact that you know people who are not journalists are busy with their lives they have other things to be getting on with and we are a kind of class of people who are paid to filter information look at it assess it find out whether or not it's true this just seems to be some kind of crazy piece of old-fashioned someone on my facebook page put it very well when i wrote this piece right isn't there are kind of two questions right there's the why aren't we publishing it it's because we can't stand it up we we can't uh, prove that the claims on it are true yeah i mean kind of to take two stories one important one you know, essentially a bit of fun gossip. Private polling showing Jeremy Corbyn ahead. 
I this only is during wrote the 2015 that. news yeah. election. Yeah, I remember you coming I, to me and saying, "Like, I've got this story, and it's going to be quite a big yeah. deal if we get it wrong." So yeah. I'm really quite confident I've got it right. Yeah, I, you know, and I only published that when I had got it separately through three different people, and then a much more trivial and not long-lasting story. Jeremy Corbyn quoting Enver Hodger at the Labour staff Christmas party in 2015, which again I didn't write up until three separate people who I knew could not all have been uh, sitting together going, <laughs> I know what would be a hilarious thing to do. So that's why we're not publishing it. The other fact, of course, is libel law. Without wishing to be ungenerous to some other media organisations, my instinct is, is that the fact that it's not true, the fact that there is a great deal of lawful behaviour on there and is just no one's business, that is not, I suspect, the problem as far as large chunks of the fourth estate are concerned, right? I think there are a lot of people who actually, almost in a way, given that everything on there is so nebulous, quite like the idea of teasing people with it and also quite like the idea of there being something that, hey, you haven't seen this, like using it kind of as clickbait, which I find pretty tasteless, but... It wasn't a particularly useful list in any case, so I guess it's not, yeah. it's um, not the end of the world. But you know what I mean? Doing that kind of tease thing of like, reveal the list, whatever, and then you click through and it's just a, you know, it's just a thing about the list. I think the interesting thing is, and this is a piece and I will at some point get my act together and write about, is that I suspect one of the reasons why people are often inclined to see conspiracy in the act of the press is because the people who become journalists, it's become so socially rarefied and concentrated in London. You know, the problems in my old job of stock taking, tax returns, yada, yada, those are problems that everyone has and everyone knows yeah. about because there are people who do those things in every town. As journalism becomes more socially closed off, the existence of libel law as a force journalists grapple with becomes less known because journalism is a conspiracy it's just a social one not a political one yeah i agree with you i think that's very true and actually i think journalists are often slightly reluctant to be transparent about how and why they do things as well i think you definitely felt this yesterday on on twitter of people being like oh well, i've seen it it says this and this and this which inevitably puts people's backs up because they're kind of like well what you know what's so special about you that apparently you have the you know kind of psychic intuition that you're able to kind of look at this stuff when, and, why, and why can't I you know why do you think you're so high and mighty and I think that's a fundamental kind of power problem too you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Stephen Bush my colleague Helen Lewis it's recorded by India Borg and produced by Caroline Crampton our music is Devil by the Devil licensed under Creative Commons if you're looking for another podcast to add to your collection, check out Seriously. They take pop culture very, very seriously. And this week they're discussing what to me is the best Marvel film of the lot, Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok.